Well, we return to our regularly scheduled teaching time after a uh, couple week hiatus. Um, we come to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. So it's the latter half of Romans 13. I believe, I hope we have enough, because we have a full room. Uh, looks like we do. That's great. Perfect. Let's uh, read this passage together so that we are at least have a preliminary idea of the text of, that we're going to be exploring today. Starting with verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's interesting, the previous class that we had was on Romans 13, 1 through 7, which was all about the relationship of a Christian to government. And that was why I had to bring my little can of worms because it just kind of opens up all sorts of controversial topics and opinions and thoughts. In fact, you had asked me prior to teaching Romans 13 if I was going to do the whole chapter at once or if I was going to break it up. And I decided, well, I'll break it up because the first half is so intense. The latter half, to many of us in our modern mind, is like a, okay, so what? You know, that's nice. I enjoyed last week. This week is going to be boring. No, it's all God's Word, and you can't separate the verses. We do that for convenience, for the nature of our topical discussions. But if you have your Bibles open, you will notice right away that, chapter, that verse 7 uses similar language to verse 8. Verse 7 says, pay to, what, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything. It's the same word. Yes, it's a different verb form, but it's the same idea. The problem is, historically, in interpretation, 
the phrase, owe no one anything, has been pulled out of context. And then certain financial gurus say, you should never go into debt for any reason. In other words, pay cash for your million dollar home. Well, there's a few of you that could do that. I'm not one of them. <laughs> uh, you, should never, you should only pay cash for your cars. I mean, there's all sorts of various things. And there's some principles here that are very real, but you cannot pull a phrase out of scripture and then make an entire biblical principle out of it when it's not necessarily consistent with everything that scripture has to say. For example, Matthew 5.42 allows borrowing in Jesus' words. In Matthew 25, verses 27, Jesus suggests that there is actually the truth in borrowing and paying interest. So you have to be careful whenever you hear someone quote a, ver a, a, ver a biblical verse and make sure they're doing it in context. Now I have more to say about that here in a second, but I just want to start with that. Because that ver this particular verse, and it's before the comma, has been pulled out as if it's a sentence. <clears throat> oh no man, anything, period. And then they make a pillow out of it or a placard or something, and then you end up with interesting things that come out of it. So we have to be careful. It is interesting too that I hope you all paid your taxes last week and followed verse 7 because <laughs> we had our United States tax time was last week so isn't that appropriate that we studied it beforehand and I hope you felt convicted. Anyway. <laughs> or you might be convicted. Or you might get convicted. Very good. Very good. You might be convicted. Oh, interesting. The fascinating thing about this verse it it's almost as if Paul is putting that idea of uh, human fiscal interaction and putting it on its head. Because there's a comma after, oh, no man, anything, or no, do not own, own anyone, anything, except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In other words, Love is a debt. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Isn't that interesting? I don't think I would normally think of love as a debt. But in the Christian life, it's a debt that we can never fulfill. You if we want to spiritualize it, which we, we can in this context, the idea of loving one another is an obligation, like a debt is an obligation, but it's one that you pay on, but it never goes away, but it's not an onerous debt. It's not something, of, oh, I'm never gonna get out from under this debt that I have to love Chuck. Oh, I just wish I could just forget about that this week. No, 
It's an ongoing thing. There's always that sense. And Paul is trying to make a point in the totality of the Christian life. He's talking about honoring the government and honoring those that God has put in front of you. And then he turns and says, and you should honor each other in the same way. Now, I have a couple of things I was thinking about this idea of, oh, no one anything, and the pure, simple principle of don't borrow what you cannot pay. I, you know, there's many of us who've been in a variety of businesses, or maybe you owned a business, or you were involved in situations where a client decided they didn't want to pay you what you were owed. And they either went into default or they would try to renegotiate the amount that you were that they were that, that they owed you. Now I don't want to put too much of a negative spin here, but this is just some interesting principles. You would think that Christians would deal honorably with Christians. You would hope. That's a wonderful aspiration. <laughs> when I ran a Christian bookstore in this valley, I had two stores, one in the East Valley, one in the West Valley. We had 500 church accounts. And I had to collect from them. You were in your 20s. I was very young then. <laughs> and it's not fun when you go to a church who says, we don't have any idea, what, we don't have any proof that we owe you anything. I went, well, your pastor bought this, and we have the signature. Yeah, but we don't have the receipt that you gave him. Okay, so I had one very large church in this town refuse to pay their bill and then canceled their account. And I had to write it off as a loss. Before we came to Camelback Bible Church, I knew of Camelback Bible Church as a broke and bickering church. That's what their brand was. And there may be a few of you that were here at that time, and you could say, yeah, that was pretty accurate. Um, and yet when we visited, we knew this was home and we knew the Bible was being preached and taught and a revival had changed the whole nature of this church. But it was broken bickering. A few years ago, a very large uh, Christian bookstore chain named Family Christian Stores went bankrupt, which meant they had millions of dollars of debt owed to publishers that they could not pay or felt they didn't, shouldn't pay. So they declared bankruptcy to get out from under it. I know of the publishers, because I was very involved in that side of it. In fact, I was, I, both my brother and I were interviewed by Christianity Today to talk about the fiscal connections and the, the issues related to this. One publisher was owed $1.5 million. Mm -hmm. And 
the store defaulted on that bill, which meant that earnings dropped off that publisher's books and the authors who got paid for those sales didn't get paid. That's, to me, that's wrong. There's something wrong with that. But the publishers didn't want them to go under, so they reworked the debt. They, you know, changed everything around, got everything all fixed up, and they basically propped the company back up took them out of bankruptcy so they could continue to be in business. Two years later, they went bankrupt and disappeared. And you kind of go, there's something wrong with that. I'm, I'm sorry if you're associated with anything like that, but it, you know, the, the ancient Persian says there were two great sins. One was to be in debt and the other was to tell a lie because the second was related to the first. The first is, hey, can you borrow, can I borrow 10 bucks? And you go, sure. Now, is there an expectation that I'll pay it back? Well, between friends, probably not, but technically. And if I can then keep telling you, oh, I'll pay you someday. I'm lying. Debt, lying, two sins connected to each other. Then you have other situations of a society that we're dealing with um, currently where, um, People like to live beyond their means. So there's a new, uh, there's a, actually it's an older video circulating of the financial guy Dave Ramsey um, on the phone on his video podcast. And this woman says, yeah, we're, my husband and I are $1 million in debt. And he goes, exactly. He goes, whoa, how? And he goes, what, what, what are you making a year? He says, oh, we're making about $210,000 a year between us. And how are you in debt? He says, well, our expenses are $300,000 a year. And he goes, okay. Um, it was just funny to watch his face because he knew he was on camera. And he's saying, well, ma'am, let me just put it this way. Currently, your expenses are $300,000. I am going to ruin your life because you're now allowed $30,000. Change your lifestyle, and we can fix this. And it will be the most painful thing you do over the next 10 years, but you can get out from under this if you start now. And there was this, <sighs> I'm thinking, well, it'd be interesting to know where they're at in that. But... We're trained. I remember when our daughter, our oldest daughter, went to college. Within minutes, she was offered credit cards from every credit card company in the city. Free credit, free credit, free credit. Buy what you want. Never think about it again until you have to pay for it. And anyway. Well, going back to the seriousness of being a dad, was, well, even in Jesus. That's right. It was dishonorable, and in the Roman society, if you could not pay your debt, the worst of the worst debtors in debtors' prison who couldn't pay it off, they were 
drawn and quartered and a piece of them was mailed to their person as a their pound of flesh I would say if that was reinstituted, the banking system would completely change. Uh, the, the, yeah, well, <clears throat> let's not talk about the U.S. debt. Anyway, uh, there is an element to this, and I, I, I can see why you pull this verse out, and out of context it changes, but there is a principle here of don't borrow or don't go into debt beyond what you think you can pay back. That's just, it's a natural, normal, uh, how should I say, responsible thing. And yet, Paul, like I said, turns it on its head and says it's except to agape each other. It's not phileo, as brotherly love. This is the godly love, that idea of the unfailing, you know, no, um, I I love you so you can give me something back attitude. And this fulfills the law. Fascinating. He's suggesting that there's no other law needed other than this one. And if you think about the principle, if everyone loved each other, with agape love, huh, Facebook would have nothing to talk about. There would be no rancor. There would be no division. We would be looking out for each other, even for those with whom we disagree. I was reading a, um, uh, a newsletter that I get periodically. I was reading it this past weekend, and the writer was talking about his beloved uncle who had just passed away. And he was saying, man, everything I know about fishing, everything I know about this and about that and these other things, I learned from Uncle, let's say, Uncle Charlie. And Uncle Charlie was just a magnificent guy, but you know what? I've lost touch, I lost touch with him in the last five years. And I blame Facebook. I went, well, that was interesting in this somewhat form of a memorial email about his beloved uncle, he starts talking about the division that occurred in the family over politics on Facebook. And he said, I used to go on there and say things on purpose just to rile him up because we're old friends. He's like a dad to me. And I said, let's see what Uncle Charlie would say about this. His response was to unfriend me and hadn't talked to me for five years. I thought, ah, in a non-Christian environment, that would be considered normal. That's really wrong. There's something wrong with that. The idea of loving one another fulfills the law. I wrote here, I said, you cannot draw a circle around yourself and your family and never venture outside of it. That's not even biblical, much less healthy. We saw that in the pandemic, where we drew circles on the floors and had to stand in our circles and, ooh, uh, sorry, you have the plague, I think. So I can't touch you or talk to you. I'll shout at you, but I can't have any interaction. 
Dwight L. Moody, there's a variation of, the, of a quote from him that I'm going to read, out, read to you. I'll, I'll, I made some adjustments to it just for the sake of our conversation here. He said, you can be a good doctor and not agape your patients. You can be a good lawyer and not agape your clients. But you cannot be a good Christian without agape. Great point. Really great point. Then for some reason, and I'll throw this out to you, not rhetorically, but why would then Paul suddenly quote from the Ten Commandments? Where's the connection? Is it because he said the word the law? What do you think? Why, why does he suddenly, and then he doesn't even quote them correctly. Okay. In the Ten Commandments, in Exodus, the, 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 the list in this half of it, the second table of the Ten Commandments, starts with murder, then does adultery, then does stealing, then does false witness, which is not on this list. He skips one. What, did he have a faulty memory? Was, did he intentionally forget about lying? Or is he, like many speakers, was just vamping? I mean, he just, off the top of his head, just start and his, you know, guy's writing it down as he's speaking. I don't know. But why? Why, why go into the Ten Commandments here? What's the connection? Because when Jesus was asked, hmm? so what is the greatest commandment? Yeah. Finish the sentence. Exactly. You finish the sentence. I know. I did that on purpose. <laughs> because he does finish the sentence, it's all summed up. You can talk all about the commandments all you want. You can talk about the law all you want. But it's summed up with you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't do that, you can't do the rest. I just thought it was interesting that he didn't quote them in exact order. Even the Deuteronomy passage is not in this order. He flipped them, flipped the first two, and then left out false witness. Hmm, interesting. But he does quote Leviticus 19.18. I've stuck that in there for your fun and enjoyment. Did you know that Leviticus 19.18 is the most often quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New Testament? That verse is quoted more than any other single verse in the Old Testament. It's quoted nine times. Matthew 5.43, Matthew 19.19, Matthew 22.39, Mark 12.31, Mark 12.33, Luke 10.27. Note the six times are in the Gospels, often in the lips of Jesus. Then here in Romans 13, also in Galatians 5.14, and in James 2.8. There's a principle here of loving your neighbor as yourself. I know it's obvious. This is why I said the, the challenge of teaching this is something where you go, yeah, just read the passage and we can go home. Um, but you know, some people misread this passage as a... Uh, what's my word? 
as support for the idea or the need to love yourself first? You can read that passage that way. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor. That is not what it says. But I would certainly say today's society is exhibiting that. This verse is not about self-love. Because we have no problem loving ourselves. We don't need that encouragement. The mirror is a technological advance that proves it. I suspect, probably more when we were younger than we do now, but wherever there was a mirror, we would just check. Is my hair in place? Am I, you know, do I have anything? The mirror, it's always something you are going to look at. Well, now it's the selfie. There's the simplistic nature of putting yourself in any photo on your own. I mean, it was really hard with the Instamatic cameras with the cube flashes. <laughs> you know, you never quite got those right, and they always blind you, and he's like, oh, it's terrible. But what's hard, that's the easy part. What's hard is loving others as much as ourselves, especially those who are unlovable and those with whom we disagree. It's really hard. And I'll admit it, I'm right there with the rest of us. There are times I read something about someone or someone presents an opinion, I'm going, I just wish they would stop talking. They're just, they're destroying culture, they're destroying society. Well, people have been destroying culture and destroying society for as long as there have been people. Paul was dealing with that 2,000 years ago. It's no different than it is today. One thing that I came across, let's see, is kind of like how this is phrased. The idea of loving your neighbor as yourself It's impossible. I'm sorry. I love myself too much. I'm just, I, it's all about me. And so the idea of treating someone else as well as I should be treated or as well as I try to treat myself is impossible. Well, actually, for the Christian, it is impossible with God and only in Christ the spirit that is within us that empowers us it's all about him not about us and if it's about him first our neighbor second then we are taken care of it's I know it's that simple, it's kind of corny, but it works, and it preaches, and it teaches. 
This is exactly what this passage is about because Paul repeats himself in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Well, yeah, you just said that in verse 8. He's trying to make sure that we get it. The law is not there as an impediment. The law can be simply fulfilled by love. And isn't it interesting, whenever you say, oh, Paul writes about love, but only in 1 Corinthians. He writes about it all the time. It's just the 1 Corinthians 13 passage is just so well known. We don't realize that this Paul fellow who people say is misogynist and grumpy and just a, you know, a, a super intellectual that does not have anything for the rest of us is actually incredibly practical. Even at this level right here. One fellow wrote about agape, he said this, Agape love is not sentimental or emotional. It's obedient. Because it's a manifestation of the act of one's will that desires another's highest good. Agape is unconditional, so that if it is given and not returned, you don't stop giving. Agape gives and gives and gives and gives. Agape takes a slap in the face and still gives. Even as Jesus did when he said, Father, forgive them. Agape is never withheld. Agape is a badge of discipleship, a landmark of heaven. For Jesus clearly, clearly declared that by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have agape for one another. That's John 13, 35. The church father Tertullian described the love of the early church with these words, it is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. Look, they say, look how they love one another. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. Therefore, the old adage is very true. People do not care how much we know until they know how much we care. So verse 11 flips over to a different topic. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. Hmm. I'll bet if you just take that verse out and this week just meditate on it. And try to think, what is Paul talking about? Is he talking about end times? Ooh, cool. Let's go read the book of Revelation. Is he talking about death? Well, that isn't cool, but okay. Now, the word sleep there is not the metaphor for death. It's the word sleep. In the Greek, it means sleep. <laughs> you can't misinterpret that word. There's no other meaning here. But we can go up to the first part of the verse and look at the Greek behind the phrase, besides this, you know the time. Now, I have talked about the two big Greek words for time before. There are, is chronos, 
which we get chronological, and that means the ticking of the clock. And there's Kairos. Kairos is more of a, I would say it's divine time. It's a, a it can be an epoch, it can be an era, it can be an appointed time, but it's not necessarily on the clock. Uh, in fact, I, I was inspired after teaching on this with you, you all. Um, I did an entire uh, keynote speech on the importance of time to a group of writers, and I said, the thing about Kronos is that it's horizontal. You go from beginning of time to the end of time. Okay? We can actually walk along it. We know that God lives outside of time. For him, there is no beginning in the end because he is both. He sees the end before the beginning, the beginning before the end. He lives outside of time, which is really hard for us to comprehend. But when you have this horizontal thing, kairos is vertical. Kairos are those special times, the God-appointed times, and guess what? It makes the sign of the cross. That's the point. That in that appointed time, when the time was fully come, Jesus came into this world. Bang. And you see these moments. The problem is we don't see them because we're so wrapped up in our chronology, we never see the vertical time moments. We don't look for them. Or they happen and we go, whoa, that was surprising. And, oh, it's surprising because you weren't looking for it. So when he says, you know, and I mean, this is the intu an intuitive type of knowing. You know the kairos. That the hour has come. God is among us. He is in you. He is with you. So wake up. We have a, a, um, an illustration of people who couldn't stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus goes to pray in this enormously difficult emotional time. And he comes back and he finds the disciples. I mean, it was late at night. It was probably after midnight. And they're like, you know, like, ah. Can you guys just stay with me? Can you just be? be can you stay awake? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, no problem, Jesus. Yeah. And then he goes back and prays and comes back and they fell asleep again. It is time to wake up. Martin Luther wrote a parable about this verse, which is very interesting. He wrote a parable about Satan conversing with his minions his demons on the progress they had made in opposing the truth of God and destroying the souls of men. One spirit said there was a company of Christians crossing the desert and he said, and I loosed the lions upon them and soon the sands of the desert were strewn with their mangled corpses. And Satan answered, so? The lions destroyed their bodies, but their souls were saved. It's their souls I'm after. 
Well, another demon reported, well, there was a company of Christian pilgrims sailing across the sea on a vessel, and I sent a great wind against the ship and drove the ship on the rocks, and every Christian aboard was drowned. And Satan says, so? Their bodies were drowned by the sea, but their souls were saved. It's their souls that I am after. So the third demon came forward and he said, well, for 10 years I've been trying to cast a Christian into a deep sleep and I have succeeded. And with that, the corridors of hell rang with shouts of magnificent triumph. If you ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, the letters of the demon to his uh, Uncle Wormwood, I think. Uncle Screwtape. Wormwood is writing to Uncle Screwtape. And if you read it, the Christian is kind of fending off various spiritual attacks. And he said, so when he's in church, just remind him that he's hungry. And then we got him. Because he's no longer listening to the sermon. And he's no longer worshiping. It's that simple. Wake up from sleep. One pastor said, walk around your house and count how many clocks you have. He counted 36 in his house. And I thought, well, that's not. So I walked around our house last night and I found, I think, there's either 10 or 12. I wasn't sure. Depends on how you want to count them as ones we actually use or not. Some are decorative, and they don't have batteries in them, so I guess you can't count them. <laughs> Some people, their uh, DVD player, their TV or whatever has a clock on it. Their microwave has a clock on it. Mm -hmm. We turn the clock off of our microwave. We just want to know how many seconds there are to cook. We don't care what time it is. We know what time it is. Although the clock that's over that is about off what, how much? much? We have two different clocks in our house that do not tell the accurate time, so you have to stop and go, what time is it? Hmm. So we're always not quite sure. That's why we're always late. Anyway, uh, <laughs> in fact, we have one clock that we don't want it to be impossible to change the mechanism. What does it add? Five minutes every week? Every two days. Yeah, every two days it adds five minutes to the time. So I'm looking at going, okay, it's the 15th of the month, so let's see. It's a clock. <laughs> anyway, and people don't have watches as much as before because they just simply pull their phone out and click. Just like that. I now know it's 11.43. I do not have the software where it calls me and says, I understand you've just been in an accident. <laughs> Did you know there was someone who got put that app on their phone and then they went on a roller coaster ride <laughs> and, and the ambulance came? Oh, no. So I was like, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. John Piper said his off while he was preaching. Oh. He needs such a violent gesture oh, yeah. preaching. <laughs> it's, yeah, the Apple Watch went off because he was gesturing so hard. I think it's hilarious. We understand you've been in an accident, sir. There's also a, a, a clock that we have in our society called the Doomsday Clock. 
You've heard of it, you know, it's basically how many, how close we are to nuclear holocaust. Uh, anybody know how close it's set right now? Because it got changed in uh, January of 2023. Mm, probably like 15 seconds or something. It's, it's 90 seconds now. 90 seconds. Uh, yeah, 90 seconds. In 2002, it was seven minutes. Mm. So, ooh, we're getting closer and closer. Of course, that whole thing is politically motivated and they're trying to make commentary on, on the world. This is a bunch of evil people pointing their nasty weapons at each other and someday somebody's gonna be stupid. We know this. It's just, it's humanity. But then he says, wake up, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now there's a lot of different ways of looking at that. If you think about, is he talking about aging we're closer to heaven today than we were yesterday. There's a that, there's a absolute fact to that. There's also an absolute fact that we are closer to Christ's return today than we were yesterday. So do we live as if we are in anticipation of his return or of our ascension? Probably not, probably don't even think about it. But Paul is trying to urge them in the light of this whole idea that there's only a certain number of minutes on the clock. There's 1,440 minutes a day. That's all you have. And how are you spending them? And so I wrote down, time is not something you spend. Time is something you invest. There's a big difference between the two. If you spend something, there's no return. It's just gone. You might get a product in exchange, but if you invest time, it invests in eternity, and it could be investing in the eternity of someone else. And then he continues, kind of metaphorically, says the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. When you say cast off and then put on, you could actually write this as let's put off the works of light, of darkness, and put on the armor of light. He's using the put on, put off, the take on, take off concept here because it continues in the next verses. The night is far gone, the day at his hand, let us cast off the works of darkness. John Calvin wrote it this way. Ignorance of God is what he call, what Paul calls night. For all who are thus ignorant go astray and sleep as people do in the night. The unbelieving do indeed labor under these two evils. They're blind and they're insensible. But this insensibility he shortly after, de after designated by sleep, which is one to say, an image of death. By light, he means the revelation of divine truth by which Christ, the Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, arises on us, Malachi 4.2. He mentions awake, 
by which he intimates that we are to be equipped and prepared to undertake that which the Lord requires of us. For the works of darkness are shameful, and the work of night is shameless. And instead, he says, to put on the armor of light. Well, you obviously can imagine what's the first thing you think of when you think of armor and spiritual things. Warfare. It's spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 immediately comes to mind. Isn't it interesting? This is written approximately three years before he wrote Ephesians. So he's, he's not... You have to realize Paul is a thinker and a teacher and a preacher and he's teaching and preaching every single day. We have these letters which are, boom, they're divinely inspired works of the Holy Spirit through Paul's hands in his writing. But the truth has poured into Paul He puts it on paper, but he's continuing to teach and preach. So when he later comes to the Ephesian passage, talks more about spiritual warfare, that image has already been touched on, not elaborated upon, but touched on. That's why you see so many themes throughout all of Paul's writings. In fact, if you were to read a book on the theology of Paul, you can find a topic and see where he has written or talked about something or a topic multiple, multiple times. And then you look at the the total unit unit of it. In fact, I have a book, lots of books, uh, but I have a a book where a fellow took all of the writings of Paul and rearranged them by topic, which is fascinating. Just start reading. And then he tried to, as best he could, he tried to arrange them in chronological order in which they were most likely written. And so you see this development and fullness of Paul's writings. Anyway, I love the metaphor of the armor of light. I mean, as someone who likes science fiction and fantasy, it's just all sorts of imaginative things come to mind. Um, Light is such a powerful thing in in and against darkness. If this room were completely dark, and I'm talking about the kind where you can't see your hand in front of your face, it is no longer dark if there is the tiniest flicker of light doesn't illuminate the whole room, but you can no longer call it a completely dark room. So for those of us who are called to be soldiers of light, to be wearing the armor of light, you can walk into a completely dark, horrific, awful place, and your light is the light of Christ that will change that conversation merely because you have come there. The Puritan Thomas Watson writes about it this way. Thomas Watson is my favorite Puritan of all the Puritan writers. 
Some people like other fellows. I like Thomas Watson a lot. This is what he writes. It is light for beauty and armor for defense. A Christian has armor of God's making which cannot be shot through. He has the shield of faith, the helmet of hope, the breastplate of righteousness. This armor defends against the assaults of temptation and the terror of hell. This armor is of God's making. And the Lord, with His armor, gives strength. Alexander the Great might have given armor to a coward, but he could not give that man courage. But God infuses a spirit of magnanimity into His people. And with His armor, He conveys strength. My strength is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12.9. When a Christian has God's armor and goes forth in the power of His might, nothing can hurt him. The wicked one touches him not, that is, with a deadly touch. Grace is bulletproof armor. It can be shot, but not shot through. The spiritual armor is not burdensome, for the Christian may run his race with it, as well as fight. The more the armor of God is struck, the stronger it is. And the more faith is assaulted, the more vigorous it is, and the more zeal is it that opposes it, the hotter the armor gets. This excellent armor makes a Christian steadfast. Hypocrites wear Christ's colors, but lack Christ's armor. I will say that again. Hypocrites wear Christ's colors. They may wave the flag but they don't wear the armor. And therefore, upon attack, they fall away. The righteous one never gives over the spiritual combat until the trophies are hung up and the palm branches are put in his hand as a token of victory. That is such an incredible picture of what Paul is trying to say here. That armor of light is impenetrable. Yeah, it can hurt. Talk to anybody who is who wear who has worn um, body armor, you know, the bulletproof vest. If they get shot, they will be bruised because the kinetic energy is still going to go through and bruise the bone and the flesh. But they stand up afterwards. You can get hurt, but you cannot be destroyed. And with that in mind, we have the courage and the belief that hey, you know what? Say what you will. I have Christ on my side. So verse 13 says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on, there's that word again, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Now, it's an interesting story about the church father, I guess you'd call him an early church father, St. Augustine born in 354 AD so I would say he was a fairly early church person 
and he grew up in North Africa and um, lived a, I guess you can call it a wanton life. He, uh, you know, he did later settle down with one young lady, but never married her. So they did not have a godly marriage. He wasn't a believer per se, but he was an explorer of ideas and thought. He had a very sharp intellect and he was constantly searching for meaning in life, in theology and philosophy in particular. He became a, a renowned professor of rhetoric at the University of Milan. At the age of 34, his past sins and his feeling of emptiness began to really press upon him. Meanwhile, his mom was a faithful Christian and never stopped praying for him. And it's well documented in Augustine's memoir called Confessions. So let me read you a particular passage from Confessions. It's kind of in the middle of the book. I mean, you got all uh, this, the wanton and horrible searching part of the book, and then you have the after. But here we are. He's 34 years old. He's wondering what life is all about. He says, this profound pondering drew up, up all my misery from the bottom of the mysterious abyss and heaped it up where my heart would see it. And there arose a tremendous tempest bringing a colossal downfall of tears. Hardly knowing where I was or what I was doing, I sprawled under a fig tree and gave my tears free reign. Rivers of them burst out of my eyes. An acceptable sacrifice to you, and he's speaking to, about God. And I spoke to you at length, not in these exact words, but in this general sense. But you, Master, how long, how long before your anger reaches its end? Don't cling to the memory of my wrongdoings. I felt I was in the grip of these. With abandon, I uttered these pitiful words. How long will it be? Tomorrow? No, the next tomorrow? Why not now? Why, why can't this hour be the end of this disgusting state that I'm in? I was saying these things and weeping with agonizing anguish in my heart. And then I heard a voice from the household next door. The voice of someone. A little boy or girl, I, I don't know which, incessantly and insistently chanting, Take up and read. Take up and read. Take up and read. Immediately my mood changed. I, I started considering with great concentration whether children were accustomed to chanting something like that in any kind of game. And I couldn't remember that I'd heard anything like it anywhere. I got control over the onslaught of my tears and got up, construing the chant as a straightforward divine command to open a book and read the first chapter I found. Excited, I returned to the spot where my friend Alpheus was sitting. I had put down a book of the Apostle Paul's letters there. And I grabbed it and opened it 
and I read in silence the passage on which my eyes first fell. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make provision for flesh to gratify its desires. He read Romans 13, 13 and 14. I didn't want to read further. There was no need. The instant I finished this sentence, my heart was virtually flooded with a light of relief and certitude, and all the darkness of my hesitation scattered away. And I do what he did, and it said I put a put my finger in a placeholder in the book and closed it. And then told my friend, Alpheus, what had just happened. And my friend said, me too. And I read the next verse, which reads, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. That's chapter 14, verse one. Thus began Augustine's faith, reading this verse. So when was it? Uh, four years late, 14 years later, he wrote the Confessions. But four years later, he moved from Milan back to North Africa to the city of Hippo, where he became the bishop there for 40 years and became one of the greatest early theologians and writers of the Christian faith. His works are still being read and studied and quoted constantly. He was heavily influential on Luther and Calvin and who in, their, in the Reformation and where we are today. All because he was being convicted by the Spirit in his life. And then a child in the other room. Imagine if they all started chanting, take and read. We would be in a really weird place right now. But if they did, and we then wrote or read, I should have done that. <laughs> I should have had some signal, you know, some little thing. Now's the time to do it. Have them go, take and read, take and read. Anyway, that would have been really weird. Anyway, to think of how powerful that verse is, to change someone like Augustine, which changes the course of human church history. We look at it and go, yeah, 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 I, mean, I know it's bad to be in orgy, orgies and drunk and immorality and all that. But look at that last verse. The NIV translates it, I actually kind of like the NIV, because it says, clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on. So I had to think about that for a second and, you know, tell me if I am overthinking it. But as a believer, we have Christ in us, in all of his fullness. So we have the fullness of Christ within. But what about the outside? So when someone looks at me, what are they seeing? Let's just not talk about that. So anyway, what are they seeing? But if you put on the clothes, you put on Christ. Now these aren't clothes you could buy at Macy's or order on Amazon or go to Walmart and find them on a discount. This is that armor 
This is that clothing of light that when someone sees us, the light that within is amplified without. And therefore, when we love one another, we love the unlovable, we love those with whom we disagree, they see light. They don't see enmity. We can be firm and say, your behavior is wrong. Your behavior is unbiblical. But you can say that in a manner that is loving because you care. There's a well-known Vegas magician. Um, You have, uh, have, what is it? Um, (laughs) Penn and Teller. So Penn Gillette. Big, massive, six foot five, massive guy. He is a absolute 100% atheist. And pretty much militant about it. But in his book on his life, he says, you know, I've met a lot of Christians, and the ones that I don't admire are the ones who don't witness to me. Because they must not really believe what they say they believe. But those who love me enough that they want to convince me that their faith is real and I need to believe, I can admire that. Isn't that an interesting twist? So there are those who come along, hey, I'm a believer, but yeah, let's just hang out. He's like, you're a hypocrite. If you're going to wear the armor of light, let me see it. Don't put it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Uh, But don't put a cloak over it. Let it be seen. And then make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What a picture. And so, a passage that we almost could just skip and no one would have noticed. We would have gone in chapter 13. There may have been a few of you going, oh, did we miss a passage? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's kind of obvious because it has the commandments in there. and We all know what those are. Instead, when we look at it, the challenge to us to wake up and become that light in our community, in our relationships, in our circumstances, is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time for extraordinary words yet again. You know, we should just simply not be surprised when your word pokes at us and penetrates and makes us think differently. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity and for the blessing that we have to study it together as a body of believers in any community. In Jesus' name, amen.